Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Mark Cheatham about his new book, The Coming of Democracy, Presidential Campaigning in the Age of Jackson. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Well, I am a professor of history at Cumberland University, which is located about 30 miles east of Nashville in a small town called Lebanon. Um, I have been here since 2008, and I was an undergraduate here, so I had the opportunity to come back and teach in my alma mater, which has its benefits and challenges. Um, And then I'm also the project director for the papers of Martin Van Buren here at Cumberland. So what was it that led you to write this book about presidential campaigning in the antebellum era? After I finished Andrew Jackson's Southerner, uh, which is a previous book, um, I was looking for another project, of course. And one of the great things about being a senior scholar, which is still hard for me to imagine, but um, one of the great things is that you can kind of pick and choose what you want to do. And I've always um, been interested in Jacksonian politics, and I've written about it and around it. So I wanted to look at the 1840 election. It had been probably 50 years or so since a book had been published about the 40 election. And so I approached Johns Hopkins with the idea, um, got a contract. And then as I started to research and write, the manuscript developed differently. And I decided that I would expand it to look at not just the 1840 election, but the period between 1824 and 1840 and look at how presidential campaigning changed during those years, with 1840 sort of being the crescendo um, of of that period and and the changes that were going on. So it was a it's it's interesting because this project did not develop like others I'd done with other projects. I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to do, and this one changed um, as I was progressing. But I think it turned out okay. It's a very interesting book because. There are books out there about presidential campaigns and presidential elections during this period, and there are a lot of of of, of artifacts and 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 popular uh, recollections about this era. We 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 you know talk a lot about you know Tippecanoe and Tyler too and so forth. What I thought was fascinating about your book was how you basically take these two strands and really you know, connect them in such a way to show how, uh, you know, one was helping the development of the other, how presidential campaign was evolving with all of these new uh, mediums and these new tools, and how these were helping to reshape the whole concept of presidential campaigning during this era. Yeah, it's funny, because I, I didn't intend to do this. But again, as I progress, I think I realized this was happening. I was doing a couple of things with a book. I was taking sort of a, a top-down view, sort of a big-picture view of you know what's happening in terms of development during these years, but also looking at it from the bottom up. You know, what is it that attracts voters, that attracts Americans to these campaigns, that gets them involved, that gets them energized in uh, in these presidential campaigns? And so, it, it it's funny how it sort of came together. I hope it came together okay where you have the the big picture view, but then you have also the nitty gritty details of how all this is taking place and, and helping candidates win these presidential campaigns. 
to in your book, one of the things you do to illustrate what's going on is you contrast the this era of campaigning from the mid eighteen twenties to uh, eighteen forty with presidential campaigns that preceded it. I was wondering if you could start us off by explaining what presidential contests were like prior to the eighteen twenties. How were presidents uh, chosen during these elections, and how did they go about the process of winning votes to and winning offices during the you know, late late 18th, early 19th centuries. Yeah, it was a very different time in a lot of ways. Um, and I'll just, I'll just highlight some of the differences. One is that uh, prior to the mid-1820s, many state legislatures cast their state's electoral votes for president. And so we're used today to voters voting and then that, you know, transforming into electoral votes directly but that was not the case in many states um, during this period. And so state legislatures were very important. And so you would have voters who would elect state legislators uh, who would then cast the state's votes, but it wasn't a direct connection between the voter and the electoral votes. So that's one difference. A second difference would be that presidential candidates uh, were chosen, uh, at least from about 1800 on, were chosen by congressional caucuses. So you have groups of congressmen who would come together. They would decide, we want to put this person forward as our party's candidate. And that is how you would have candidates nominated. And again, that's very different from what we're used to today with our, our primary and caucus system that seems to last longer and longer every election cycle. And then a third difference, <clears throat> excuse me, a third difference would be in the way that candidates approach campaigns. So prior to, really prior to the 1836 election, you don't have presidential candidates um, engaging directly with voters. Uh, they're not holding rallies. They're not, you know, crossing the country in a whirlwind tour to try to, to, try to drum up support. Um, they do have some contact through correspondence, you know, through written form. But it's really, the expectation was that candidates would sit back and people would work for them, but the candidates themselves were not supposed to engage directly with the voter. And so you had this, this system prior to the Jacksonian period in which candidates are removed from the populace. Really, the election, the, the selection of, of nominees is removed from, from the voting populace, and uh, the candidates themselves are removed. And so what the Jacksonian period does is it starts to bring the voter and the candidates much closer together in these presidential campaigns that turn into pretty raucous affairs. So what exactly changed in the 1820s to bring this about? Are we talking about a uh, change in how did was it sparked by how the candidates presented themselves? Was it sparked by any changes in the electorate? What brought about the transition that you then, you know, talk about in terms of the consequences of in your book? So there, there are, a couple of things going on. One is that in the 18 teens and then the early 1820s, you have uh, states changing requirements for voting. And so many states had prior to this period had um, requirements for voters to own property or to pay a certain amount of taxes annually. And so many of those restrictions are lifted. And all of a sudden, in the mid-1820s, between 1824 and 1828 in particular, you have this explosion in terms of available voters, you know, newly qualified voters who were able to cast votes um, for president. 
And with this new growing voting base, it's almost as if politicians woke up and realized, you know, in the past, we've sort of relied on this, this system of removal and, and sort of this, this gap between candidates and voters um, because it really, I mean, it made a difference, but the voting population wasn't, wasn't tremendously huge. And now all of a sudden, you know, the voting population almost doubles. And so we have to find ways to energize these voters and connect them to our candidates and connect them um, to our campaigns. So I think that's part of it. And then also, I think it's the realization by people like Martin Van Buren, for example, uh, a New Yorker who is really the architect of the Jacksonian Democratic Coalition that elects Andrew Jackson in 1828. It's the realization that, you know, not only do we need to energize these voters, but we also need to control and bring order to these voters. And one of the ways to do that is through political parties. Uh, Interestingly, early in U.S. history, political parties were sort of frowned on. They were looked at as, you know, at best a necessary evil um, because people, you know, voters and politicians were supposed to be involved in politics for, you know, moral reasons and virtuous reasons and not for self-interested reasons. And what Van Buren and other politicians realize is that, you know, that's all well and good. And you would hope that that would happen. But the reality is that that's really not what happens. And so we need to find ways that if people are going to be motivated by self-interest, let's find ways to contain that, bring order to it, and then give direction to that in the political party system that develops between the Democrats and eventually the Whig party um, is really an outgrowth of that. So, you know, there are a lot of things going on in the late 18 teens and early 1820s that, that helped shape these presidential campaigns. And what it does is it brings up the realization that politicians and these new parties need to figure out how can we connect with voters. And so that leads to a whole slew of innovations or, things that were done at the state and local levels that are brought to the national level to try to get control of these voters and help push them in the right direction, depending on which party you were in. I was reading your book and I couldn't help but feel that Andrew Jackson was playing a role in this as well, because so much of the media that you relate to was focusing upon aspects of his personality. And you think about the presidents that preceded him, particularly uh, the last couple the last two or three, and they weren't necessarily these very dramatic personalities, and they did not have these necessarily these dramatic uh, resumes uh, or, or, or histories that could be exploited electorally. But when you were uh, talking about some of the songs that cropped up about Andrew Jackson, they're very much about him as a person, and not so much about the issues, and, and, and about how this I, this image that he projected. And, and it seems like that seems to be an element as well. How it does seem to be. You know, the mobilization is not just about mobilizing them for the party, but mobilizing them for the person in particular. Right. And I think that's definitely true for Jackson and with later candidates such as William Henry Harrison in 1840. Uh, Jackson is, you know, he's a national hero. He had uh, he had helped defeat the British at the Battle of Orleans. And that really is what launches him into the national sphere as early as early as 1816. People are mentioning his name as as potential uh, as a potential presidential candidate, and he's just sort of this bigger than life guy. He's like a George Washington, and people compare him to Washington all the time. And so I think Jackson understands that. And even though he doesn't direct to directly campaign, you know, because that's not what you were supposed to do as a presidential candidate, 
uh, at least during the 1820s. Um, what Jackson does do is he is working behind the scenes with the men close to him, men like John Eaton, William B. Lewis, and others, to ensure that they are crafting and fashioning a campaign that uses his image to galvanize voters. Um, I think this is very clear that that in protecting his his honor, protecting his character, protecting his name, he is not just doing that to to defend himself, but also because he wants to project a different character, a different name, a different image um, that will appeal to voters. And it's interesting because Jackson also, following the 24 election, uh, which was a very contested election, it, it had gone to the U.S. House and the House had selected John Quincy Adams over Jackson. Jackson saw that as a betrayal of the will of the people because he had won the most popular votes, the most electoral votes, the most states, the most regions. He just didn't have the electoral majority required to win in 1824. And so when he winds up not going into the presidential mansion, I think Jackson sees this as a betrayal of him personally, but also of the will of the people. And historian Robert Remini talks about how this is really when Jackson transforms into a Democrat, into a lowercase Democrat, to where he believes that the will of the people should um, should govern. And one of the ways that he's going to ensure that that happens is to make sure that he wins the election of 1828 and becomes the people's representative in the presidential mansion. That, of course, requires reaching out to the people in a way that so many candidates have not needed to do up until this point, as you were pointing out. And so they have to craft these tools. And you spend a, a good part of your book describing uh, these tools and how they were used. So I was wondering if you could take us through those tools and, and, and the medium in which they were conducting this outreach, because it, we might have these facile comparisons today with, with, with modern media, you know, television, the internet and so forth. But this was something that was fairly new. The, the, the very notion of, of mass media was, was fairly new and they were having to craft some things that were to, to fit with it and also to invent things to, to, to try to do that outreach. Could, what, what exactly were they developing and what exactly were they adapting? So there were a number of tools and activities and other things that they developed or that they um, extended. And so I try to be really clear in the book that a lot of the things that happen in, in between 1824 and 1840 are things that were done early uh, even sometimes before the United States was founded. Um, but what happens between 24 and 40 is that these things begin to be used aggressively during presidential campaigning and by 1840 are part and parcel and are expected of presidential campaigning. So if your listeners will bear with me, I'll just very quickly go through these and then we can expand um, as we need to. So one of the things that campaigns did was they began to use auxiliary organizations. So these are things like the old Hickory clubs that supported Jackson, for example. So this was, these were just group of groups of Jackson supporters who would get together and they would discuss, you know, Jackson discuss policy. Maybe they would celebrate, you know, the anniversary of the battle of New Orleans, but these are really ways that political parties could connect on a micro level with supporters of a particular candidate. Then you have material culture. So these are objects that um, you could wear, that you could display that showed your support uh, for a candidate. So again, using Jackson as an example, uh, Jackson was known as Old Hickory. That was one of his nicknames. And so many of his supporters would wear 
uh, hickory leaves or hickory twigs, or they would plant hickory poles in the ground to show their support of him. You have print culture. So this includes things like newspapers and campaign biographies and other types of printed media. You have visual culture. So political cartoons, for example, are a huge, huge part of this development of presidential campaigning. You have political music, um, songs, um, oftentimes set to the tune of familiar um, popular songs that were used that people would know so that they could sing along. Um, and these lyrics could be printed in newspapers or they could be distributed uh, as they were in 1840 in songbooks, which is kind of an interesting way to think about them. You have public correspondence between candidates um, and people. Um, so you would have someone write a presidential candidate uh, or even sometimes write a president and that person would then write back to their constituent and it would be printed in newspapers so people could get a sense of someone's views on certain issues. You have public events, uh, which oftentimes were paired together with public speeches. So rallies, parades, um, at which candidates or their proxies were expected to give speeches indicating why um, listeners should support their candidate or their campaign. And then finally, you have women's activity, which is interesting because I think sometimes we have this misconception that women aren't involved in politics at this period because they couldn't vote. Or if they were, they were only involved in trying to get the right to vote. But the reality is that women's political activity was pretty prevalent during this period. And even though they couldn't vote, and oftentimes they were relegated to the sidelines in, in, at political events, they still have an important role to play in the politics of this period. And I think we have to rethink how we define politics. If we get away from thinking of politics as voting for office or holding office, think about politics in a, in a more expanded way, then it helps us see more clearly how women were involved in politics. So that's sort of a quick overview of the different ways that presidential campaigns engaged with voters and, and, and ways that voters became engaged in presidential campaigns. Your description of both the media itself and how it was applied, I thought was very interesting. Uh, I was wondering if you could perhaps explain who's producing some of this media. Was it, as you were describing earlier, was it coming entirely from the president and a few close aides? Was there a degree of, of local initiative involved? Uh, how, how exactly was this uh, material being generated and then spread to where you have hickory poles in multiple locations throughout the country and not just, say, in a few neighborhoods in Tennessee or, or, or just one region of the country? Right. Well, let me talk about a couple of things that hopefully will help illustrate what we're talking about. So the Democrats in particular, so the Jacksonian Democrats, which emerged as a coalition between 1824 and 1828, they have a very structured party system by 1828. So there's a central committee in Washington, D.C., and then there are state level committees and then local committees in sort of a hierarchical form uh, that that take direction or take advice from the, the central committee in Washington and then apply that to the state and the local levels. And by 1840, the opposition, the anti-Jackson opponents, the Whigs, had started to do something very similar. Uh, and so what this does is it gives us really a reflection of what happens today, where you have a national party committee and you have a structure in place where the national party sort of says, here are our talking points or here are the things that we're concerned about. 
and here's what we need to do to help bolster our candidate or our party. It's a very similar thing um, during the Jacksonian period. And so um, one of the ways that the side structure that the party would be able to to sort of um, streamline and, and cohere a message would be through newspapers. Um, newspapers were essential um, to spreading the message of your party. And it's interesting, you know, given our current day focus on unbiased media and, you know, real news and fake news and all that, newspapers during this period were openly partisan. Um, they were many times run by um, party activists or they were underwritten financially by party activists, sometimes by candidates themselves. And they are producing a very biased, a very partisan message. And that is another way that you could bring together a united message across the nation is that you would have, say, a Washington, D.C. newspaper print an editorial or print a letter to the editor or print something else. And then that would be replicated across the country. Uh, you know, we would use the term retweeted, maybe you know, <laughs> using Twitter today, but they would take sections or maybe even whole cloth, take these editorials and letters and reprint them. And so you're in Washington getting the news and then you could be in Nashville getting the exact same news a little bit later, of course, in time. Or you could be in you know, Columbus, Ohio or somewhere else and you're getting essentially the same news. Maybe it's modified a little bit or, or stripped down a little bit, but it's essentially the same message. And so we don't tend to think of this period as having that kind of unanimity or that kind of uniformity of message, but it was fairly easy to do. Um, and even with the time lag, you know, in terms of days or sometimes weeks, depending on when we're talking about between when something was printed the first time and when it was reprinted, you still get the message across. Um, and I think that it, in that way, parties are able to pretty effectively create these campaign messages and, and use these, these campaign symbols um, in ways that probably surprise a lot of listeners. One of the uh, things I was struck by as well was your description of the correspondence, because I was thinking about the challenge that they had back then, uh, not just the, the idea of the, pr the presidents not being seen to be actively seeking the campaign, but of course, there was the, the, the physical challenge of how do you get out and reach out across this vast country? You're talking about the era prior to railroads. Uh, the telegraph is just developed at the very uh, end of the period. And, and so there's this question of how does a presidential candidate get their message out to, to lots of people? And the idea of these – you describe one mechanism here with the newspaper uh, you know, articles being shared and, 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 and reposted, shall we say. But you also have the idea of these letters. And, and, and that was struck me as very interesting because there had to have been some sort of selection process, wasn't there? Or, or, or did they simply uh, respond and, and, and expect that they write every letter with the expectation that it was going to be published? Or was there a sense that they were writing these and, and they were surprised when they were published? I think it's more the former than the latter. So I think as a as a political personage, you had to understand understand and be aware that anything you wrote potentially could wind up in publication. So even if you were sending a letter to a friend and you might tell them, please don't publish this, and they probably wouldn't, you know, what if the postmaster opened up your mail? 
uh, which was fairly common. And that's, that's a common fear that people had. They would sometimes send letters through someone else so that the postmaster would not open it expecting to see their mail. So Jackson might send a letter to Van Buren, not directly, but send it through someone else so that the postmaster wouldn't look at it and see that Jackson was the one doing the writing. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of it, but there's also the, the aspect that when someone wrote a president or a presidential candidate, that presidential candidate or that president had the choice of responding with the understanding, and I think both sides knew this, the person writing to the president or presidential candidate and that person responding, that probably was going to be published. So, for example, if you are writing from North Carolina to Martin Van Buren and you say, we represent a committee of concerned Democrats and we want to know that about your views on slavery, you know, Martin Van Buren knows that this is probably going to wind up being published. And so he can think about his message. He can think, do I give them very little you know, will that help me more with voters or do I give a fuller explanation, which might help me with the voters? And just um, to clarify real quickly, this would be Martin Van Buren himself writing it. This wouldn't be as we would nowadays right. expect where he would have a team of campaign consultants, you know, carefully crafting the message for him. Right. Yeah. So working on the Van Buren papers, we have drafts of um, these type, this type of correspondence that, that Van Buren wrote and the draft is in his hands. Now, he may have had people in the room with him. He may have been bouncing ideas off of them, but it seems pretty clear in Van Buren's case, and I think also in Jackson's case, because I've looked at his letters as well, that they are personally crafting these messages. They're crafting these replies. And, you know, there are times when they're sort of cagey and they don't give a whole lot of, of reaction except to thank the, the people for writing them. But then there are times they go into some detail on an issue and I think that's just a political calculation on their part. You know, will this help me or hurt me more? But it's interesting that they see this as an essential part of campaigning. They see this as an essential part of building support for their administration or for their for their campaign chances. And again, it's something that I don't think we grasp, grasp sometimes because candidates at this point were not supposed to openly advocate for themselves but there were avenues that allowed them to do that and still remain separate from, you know, separate from the fray, so to speak, where they're not actively soliciting votes. They're simply responding to a constituent, which seemed to be OK as compared to going out and and aggressively or actively trying to solicit votes. The Another aspect that you talk about that I thought was really interesting was the notion of the the broader popular culture because we we're talking you're talking about the newspapers and the correspondence and and those seem to be targeted towards what we might think of as more literarily engaged audience but you also describe the these popular expressions for people who might not be as literate or might not be as engaged but who suddenly are you know hearing a song or seeing a parade i was especially struck by the idea of these hickory uh poles who which would oftentimes, I, I was especially uh, had to laugh at the one that was you just you quote the person who talks about how it was standing there for years afterward. <laughs> it reminded me of sort of how sometimes you'll see you know bumper stickers from you know of the people on the cars from three campaigns ago. How it's just <laughs> faded, but it's still there. <laughs> yeah, those are um, those are interesting artifacts, and you know. I'm of two minds about some of those things. So, you know, the things like the hickory poles and 
there were buttons and there are other kinds of paraphernalia coins and that sort of thing. That's sort of an easy way of engaging. It's sort of the minimal level of engagement. So I'll wear a button showing I support this candidate or I'll, you know, do this. And then you have um, those voters or potential voters who may be drawn in by a song, um, who are drawn in by, you know, a 12 a 12 foot diameter ball rolling down the road or rolling down the street. You know, if, if you're in 1840 and you're a Whig, you know, those things bring, bring engagement as well. And then you have things like political cartoons, which you might think given today's political cartoons are, were pretty simplistic. Um, but just because they were visual didn't mean that they were simplistic. You know, political cartoons during this period are really actually quite dense and they assume a lot of, political uh, understanding and political literacy uh, just to be able to identify the characters um, that are represented to be able to identify um, the captions, you know, what's being said by the different characters. They're actually fascinating um, political artifacts that speak to how engaged voters must have been because campaigns use them repeatedly and they use them uh, in, in the case of the Whigs in particular on a pretty frequent basis. So there's an assumption that they must be effective and that voters must understand what's being referenced in the cartoons. Um, and so it's really fascinating the different levels of engagement that you could, that you could have among the voting populace. And it reminds me a lot of today, you know, some people are moved along by memes uh, that are spread through social media. You know, some people, um, still go to the rallies and, you know, want to see a candidate or their proxy face to face. Um, and then some people read very deeply into policies. And so there are different levels of engagement, you know, today, just like there were 200 years ago. Were the songs, uh, as sophisticated as the cartoons or were they more simplistic or were they really just all over the place? Um, well, probably all over the place. I think, Again, there are varying levels um, when it comes to the songs. I think some of them assumed a certain level of political literacy um, from from voters, and then some of them were pretty pretty simplistic. So there's one, for example, in the 1840 election that is set to the tune of Rockabye Baby. And so it's a Democratic song about William Henry Harrison and about the use of hard cider as a campaign theme um, by the Whigs. And so I won't sing it to you, even though I live near Nashville, I'm, I'm not a professional musician, but, um, you have, you have the, this song set to the tune of rock about baby that talks about, you know, the baby's up in the tree and daddy comes home and he's drunk and the dad and the baby fall down, you know, well, that's not a, that's not a real high level intellectual engagement in terms of the lyrics, but it's something that people would have, would have known. They know the tune at least. And then it sends a very simple message and it's one that that resonates. Wigs are alcoholics. And so it's, it's one that you can retain fairly easily. Whereas there are some songs that require, you know, knowledge of cabinet members and, you know, some of their most nefarious or allegedly nefarious activities. Those require a little bit more engagement than probably the average voter had. I was struck by how sophisticated some of the songs were in the 1820s that they, I, I, I was, when I, when I started this book, I was thinking that they would just be celebrating Jackson, you know, winning the battle of New Orleans. But in those songs that, especially for 1828, when it's very much, you know, directed towards 
uh, the outrage about 1824 and all that it, it is is how it, it's it, there's a there's a critique being argued about not just uh, John Quincy Adams, but of course Henry Clay, his Secretary of State, who was vital in the in the election. I was wondering if we could talk a bit, perhaps, about some of that specific application. How what, what how did it really uh, play out in the election of eighteen in the eighteen twenties? How did it play out in the elections in eighteen thirty two and eighteen thirty six? And and can you see an evolution that takes place, or was it pretty consistent from the start? Yeah, it's interesting because if you start in 1824, there's not – out of the, the different categories I described, there really isn't a whole lot of, of activity or employment of these tools in 24. And I think part of that is that in 24, there was only one political party at the national level. You had the, the old Jeffersonian Republicans who were in charge. The Federalists had pretty much moved just to the state and local levels. And so you have one party that splits into factions in 24. And so there, there's not as much engagement um, or activity. And then between 24 and 28, things sort of coalesce around Jackson and what becomes the Democratic Party and then the opposition party, you know, the people who support John Quincy Adams and Henry Clay. And the, the fact that the 24 election was so contentious and Jackson feels like it was stolen from him and the people, and then some of the attacks that come out uh, during the 28 campaign uh, really, I think, heighten the activity and the drive, particularly by the Jacksonians, to defeat John Quincy Adams. And some of this is driven, of course, by Jackson's personality. Um, but I think a lot of it is also, again, you have this new voter base that's opened up and the Jacksonians see and seize upon an opportunity to get that voter base aligned with them and loyal to them um, going into the 28 campaign. So 28 is very active in a lot of these aspects. Um, 32 is less active. And I've always found that fascinating because so much happens in Jackson's first term. You know, you have the Eaton sex scandal, you have the nullification crisis, you have Indian removal. Um, But 32 is not as contentious as 28. And, you know, part of that may just be the lack of of personal attacks um, like we had seen in 28. And then in 36, things ramp back up again in, in most cases. And I think that's largely driven by the fact that Jackson's off the ticket. You know, he had served his two terms and now he's going to retire and he's he his anointed successor is his vice president, Martin Van Buren. Um, Van Buren, you know, is, I'm project director for, for his papers. And so, of course, I have to love Van Buren. Uh, <laughs> but most people don't have really strong feelings about Martin Van Buren. Um, he, you know, but at the time they did, uh, interestingly enough, and. But but even then, Van Buren is not Jackson. He's not as polarizing a figure, and so a lot of the a lot of the discussion in thirty six is more about Jackson and his legacy than it is about Van Buren and what he's going to do. And it reminds me, and other people have made this comparison. It sort of reminds me of Ronald Reagan and and the first Bush. You know, Ronald Reagan, two term president, sort of a polarizing figure, you know, larger than life, and then his VP. Uh, comes up for election and eh, he doesn't quite measure up. People aren't as interested. Um, and this, uh, to me, it's kind of strikes me as a, as a, as a good analogy. Um, and so 36 is, is more interesting than 32. 
um, but it's still not quite 28. And then by 1840, the Whigs, who had formed right toward the end of Jackson's second term, the Whigs have figured out if we're going to defeat the Democrats, if we're going to, going to get into the White House, if we're going to you know, become the majority party, we've got to do something. And so why don't we steal a lot of the good ideas that the Democrats had um, and not only steal those ideas, but perfect them. Um, and they do. I mean, the Whigs in the 1840 election are, are uh, remarkable in how they take a lot of the ideas that the Democrats had sort of played with and they use those and perfect those in ways that the Democrats, I don't think, even imagined. Um, and what's also interesting about 1840 is that not only do the Whigs take these these campaign tactics and these these ideas that have been developed over the preceding couple of elections, but they also pair that with the Second Great Awakening and the religious revivals um, of the Second Great Awakening. And other historians who are much, much better than I than I am have talked about, you know, how the Whigs in 1840 really meld politics and religion and, and turn political rallies, for example, into into really um, shadows of religious revivals where you go to a political rally and it looks and feels very similar to a religious revival and you come away with it with almost a religious experience to where you believe that if you don't vote Whig, if you don't vote for William Henry Harrison, then the country could come to an end. And, um, you know, so there's this dire, this direness and this urgency that accompanies um, the Whig campaign in 1840 that attracts voters and that gets voters on their side and, of course, helps when William Henry Harrison win uh, and defeat Martin Van Buren in 1840. That's interesting because the direness that you just described isn't what we today popularly remember about that election. We think of it more as, you know, Tippecanoe and Tyler II, the log cabin campaign and so forth. What it, it seems that in some ways it's, it's almost a, a disconnect it's, it, that you're, you're talking about the, the, the direness on the one hand, and yet this uh, celebration of a common person in a way that almost uh, – that and, and uh, you mentioned this in your book. It's almost oftentimes jovial and, and and happy about it. Maybe we should spend a bit more time with the 1840 election. What was uh, going on in the country at the time, and 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 what was leading the Whigs to embrace these methods? Was it just a matter of success, or did they feel that they had a candidate for whom it really worked? Yeah. So, I guess let's deal with the context first. So. Martin Van Buren did win the 1836 election. He comes into office in March of 37. And within weeks, the United States is plunged into the worst economic depression that it had ever faced. Um, and that will be what we call the panic of 1837. That will abate uh, by the end of the year and then will reemerge. And actually there'll be a worse depression that begins in, in 1839 so the economic context uh, is one in which people, Americans, feel like they're experiencing this great economic upheaval and Van Buren um, isn't really responding like they hope he would. Like, you know, he's, and he's not signaling that he's going to do anything to help relieve their economic pain and you know, the discomfort that they're feeling. And that's somewhat unfair, I think, um, because 
you know, in, in the 1830s, you know, presidents and the national government just didn't intervene in the economy like they would today. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that Americans didn't still feel that and that they didn't still think, you know, surely, you know, there's some relief that should come from somewhere. So if you think about the economic um, uh, upheaval that, that Americans are experiencing, uh, the dissatisfaction with the, the way that Van Buren and his administration respond to that, then you can understand why they might be looking for an alternative. And so I think Whigs realize that they have a golden opportunity here. You have a president who's, who's not as popular, not as charismatic, um, who is not responding um, to, the, to the needs of Americans. And you have, again, the context of, of religious revivals and all that sort of give them the ammunition to use against Van Buren. And so to defeat Van Buren, they need somebody, uh, they need a candidate who can attract voters. You know, it can't just be about the campaign tactics that you have to have someone who's attractive. And so the Whigs don't nominate who most people expected. They don't nominate Henry Clay, you know, the great statesman from Kentucky um, who had run and lost against Jackson in 1832. Um, I think everyone, including Clay, expected he would be nominated in 40, but the Whigs look around and say, look, if we're going to defeat the Democrats, we've got to out-Democrat the Democrats. And that means not just in terms of campaigning, but we need a candidate who can do that for us. And so they choose William Henry Harrison, who was a War of 1812 hero, just like Andrew Jackson. Um, He was around the same age as Jackson. Um, He was someone who, um, like Jackson had been, what did not have any strong publicly known um, political stances and they're able to take Harrison, this war hero and sort of project onto him a lot of the things that they wanted voters to support. Um, so the Whigs tended to be the party of moral reform. Uh, they tended to be the party of uh, more active government. Um, and so the Whigs are able to use Harrison in that way. And it's interesting because Harrison in 1840 actually goes on a pretty extensive speaking tour. And he had done this a little bit in 36. He had been one of the three Whig candidates in 36. Um, but he's even more explicit in 1840. He goes on this expansive uh, speaking tour across mostly the, the upper Midwest, but in other places as well. And has rallies where thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of people attend and he becomes a very popular figure. Um, in the meantime, Van Buren stays in Washington. You know, he's president and he tells people, I need to be here. I need to manage the government and that sort of thing. And one of the great ironies of 1840 to me is that Van Buren, who had sort of envisioned a more grassroots type of campaigning, you know, party structure, party organization and energy. Van Buren seems to lose all side of that in 1840. Um, and, and seeds ground to the Whigs, and the Whigs really take advantage of that, and they're able to use that very effectively to help Harrison defeat Van Buren. Another irony that I thought uh, was nicely reflected in the media that you cite is the contrast that that and this is a contrast that, that other historians are 
point to in the past of how you have William Henry Harrison, who is uh, the descendant of Virginia aristocracy, who uh, is you know very much a, a part of that elite. And you have Van Buren, who is the son of a tavern keeper, who you know comes up from you know basically modest beginnings to become president, and how in, in so much of the media that you cite, it the that whole portrayal is flipped. There's the cartoon that you have, uh, figure eight, uh, where you have Van Buren as, as a king on a throne being yanked mm-hmm. off. And then you have that song on the opposite page where, uh, which, you know, seizes upon that, uh, the depict, you know, the, 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 uh, yeah, logs, uh, the log cabin insider, uh, comment and, and basically make, you know, paints out Harrison to be, the uh, the how he's about the good old cider and how should the good old cider be despised? It's this idea that the, the campaign makes these men into the very opposite of you know who they were it, uh, prior to that point. Yeah, and you know they're in the conclusion. I talk a little bit about you know modern parallels, and one of the one of the parallels I draw is that. You know, this is something that you see today. You know, presidential candidates today are some of the wealthiest people in the nation in most cases. Um, And yet they and their campaigns try to portray them as just average Americans, you know. Um, And and it's fascinating that during the Jacksonian period, you see that happening where, you know, as you described, Van Buren comes from pretty common, common background, yet he's portrayed as this as this elitist who, who can only live in a white house that has the fanciest of decorations, <laughs> the fanciest of furnishings and has to ride around in a carriage with footmen and that sort of thing uh, has to wear the best clothing. And then Harrison, who's actually the wealthy one who actually has a mansion um, is portrayed as a farmer. He's just a, a common farmer who's out in the fields plowing and just like Washington and just like Jackson is called from the fields in order to to run for the presidency reluctantly. And he 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 allows himself to do that. I mean, it's just it's so absurd when you know what the reality is. But again, the modern day parallels are such that it was hard not to draw those parallels that that we as voters sort of allow ourselves to fall into that same trap today where, you know, we think, Oh, these people are just like us. They they're going to a diner. They're wearing a ball cap. They're, you know, doing whatever. They're just like us. And no, they're not. Um, uh, anyway, so it, 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 yeah, it's really fascinating. And, and it's so ironic again, that Van Buren and the Democrats let the Whigs drive that narrative and don't do a whole lot to counteract that effectively. I'd like to stay with the modern parallels for just uh, uh, another minute because I, I was thinking about how uh, when you end the book and you, you talk about it from the standpoint about how you have this you know population of eligible voters which is smaller uh, as a percentage than it is today, but it is this sense of you, you point out how ultimately this is about trying to compel them or to woo them in a way to get them to vote for your candidate irrespective of the actual engagement. This is, goes back to a lot of the media you cite, which is about representing issues in a certain way or portraying people in a certain way that may not necessarily be accurate, but is very much about you know trying to win that over. Do you find that there is a, a lot that this era can teach us today that can help us to better understand the, the whole process of presidential campaigning today? I do. Um, I think... You know, if you look at the, the the activities and tools that they used, you know, there are parallels uh, in terms of 
know, we talked about political cartoons, for example. Um, you know, you can see uh, memes today. Social media memes are very, very much fill the role of political cartoons, I think. Um, you know, the idea of celebrities um, using their music or other things to to support um, a candidate. That was something that happened, you know, 200 years ago as well. Um, but, you know, going back to something you said, I think it's it's interesting how, yes, there was a small a smaller voting pool or eligible voting population at this point, but the engagement was so high. You know, in, in 1840, you have over 80 percent of the eligible voters casting a vote in that election. And I mentioned, as I mentioned in the conclusion, if we get close to 60 percent today you know, of eligible voters who vote in a presidential campaign, we're ecstatic. Oh, you know, the voters are so energized. They're so enthused. And so that, you know, that led me to, to think about this. And I'm not sure I have a conclusive answer, but let me think about, you know, what is it? You know, what is it about? you know, the 19th century and campaigning in the 19th century that that compelled people or drew people into vote that we can't seem to replicate today. You know, I don't think it's just we have so many distractions and that sort of thing. I think partly it's the the feeling that voters had that their vote mattered. Um, you know, there wasn't the cynicism attached to government that we might have today uh, that comes out of the Watergate era, primarily, I think. Um, and then and so it's not just that voters felt like their vote counted, but parties made them feel like their vote counted. Um, and I'm not sure that despite the rhetoric, I'm not sure parties do that the same way today. And I'm not sure how to articulate that, but it, it's just a sense that for many voters may feel like parties today just want them to vote for the party's benefit, not for the voters benefit, if that makes sense. And whereas, you know, 200 years ago, because parties were still sort of in their in their early form, I think voters maybe felt like they had more um, agency over the, the direction and shape of the party than they do now that they're institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully that makes sense to, to, to listeners. I've, again, I'm still kind of processing this as we're going through through the election cycle right now. Hmm. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Uh, I am, uh, on a daily basis, I work on the papers of Martin Van Buren. Uh, we are uh, transcribing and uh, putting online uh, his papers. We have about 13,000 documents. Um, and so uh, listeners can, can visit our website, vanburenpapers.org, and see our work there. And then on a personal level, I'm also writing a book on the 1844 presidential election, which is um, James K. Polk versus Henry Clay. There's a smattering of other um, candidates as well, like Joseph Smith, you know, the founder of Mormonism, and um, James Burney, the Liberty Party candidate. Um, so that'll be my next project. And hopefully, I wish it were going to be done in time for the 2020 election, but it probably will be done in early in the early 2020s. Well, it sounds like a very interesting book. I don't know if there are too many books out there on the 44 campaign. Yeah, there aren't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mark, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Mark.